invitation to return and to open the Word again with you. I always enjoy uh, being with you. Uh, my wife does as well, and it's uh, a joy uh, to be in fellowship and to join together as uh, those in Southern California uh, who love the Lord and seek to please Him and uh, seek to learn of His Word and grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I work with young people. I've worked with young people all my life, and I often uh, find with young people uh, changes in culture uh, that I find surprising. And there's a new emphasis among them. I guess it's not totally new, but it's uh, new for those of us that are older, uh, is this concept of authenticity. Uh, by it, they mean that they're non-hypocritical that they're open and that they're honest, that they admit their faults, uh, they admit uh, their need to grow. But often, uh, they use the desire to be viewed as authentic as a means to be rude, selfish, unkind, just who they are. And though it has started with uh, the young people, it has spread among uh, the rest of us because it is part of culture, and as culture changes, we probably don't realize the extent to which culture also influences us, and it even creeps into uh, the local church in the way in which we seek to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And so I thought I would open 1 Corinthians 13 uh, this morning. Uh, you know this chapter well. It's a chapter that's called uh, the chapter of love. And, and it's not about attraction or affection or uh, just general kindness. It's in a section in Corinthians, in chapters 12, 13, and 14, in which Paul is helping the Corinthians, who he views to be one of the most gifted churches uh, he's ever worked with, to exhort them that as he is trying to correct some of their misconceptions regarding the use of spiritual gifts, that he pauses right in the middle and says, none of this will matter anything unless you get a hold of the concept that the gifts that we exercise must be be exercised through love. I'd like to read the whole chapter. It's not long, 13 verses. And I'd like to go back through it again more slowly and develop some thoughts. I'm reading from the New American Standard, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not 
act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. does not take into account a wrong suffered. does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. Think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now, faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. First, we have to come to understand the context of spiritual gifts to understand this chapter's importance in his exposition on spiritual gifts. Though it could be related to natural gifting, we might call that a talent, a spiritual gift is focused not on specifically the ability to play a beautiful instrument such as the piano, but on how to stimulate the growth of the body of Christ through love. It is the means by which God builds up the body of Christ through the interaction of the various members. He has told us that he has made us different from each other, and we can easily say, well, at least we're male and female. Some of us are from uh, different backgrounds, different parts of the world. We are certainly different in that way. But as believers in the body of Christ, he has sovereignly chosen to give us different gifts. And he says this is not a disadvantage, this is actually an advantage, because what would it be like if all of us were eyes, or all of us were ears, or all of us were hands? We couldn't even function as a body, as he speaks of a metaphor. Somebody has to be the feet, someone the hands, someone the head, someone the eyes, someone the ears, someone the mouth. We have to have different gifting to actually build up each other in the body of Christ. So some people will be working with young people. Uh, some people will help us with the music ministry. Uh, some people uh, will help us in leadership. Uh, some people will help us in teaching. Some people will help us in uh, the gift of helps. Uh, some will show mercy. Uh, some will show uh, the ability uh, to uh, relate well to people and understand their needs and exhort them to grow in a particular way. We have a number of different ways in which the Lord will gift us. But he tells his readers, though you're so gifted at Corinth, so though I can see how the Lord through his spirit has enabled you to minister to each other, the way in which you're exercising these gifts are being hindered by your lack of love for each other. When we read in John's letters about the balance between truth and love, many of us think, 
all I heard him say was truth. And so I will be a person who speaks truth. But John didn't say that. He was saying truth won't win the day unless you exercise the speaking of truth with love. And frankly, as Paul is relating here, it's that way with the exercise of every spiritual gift. We will not succeed in building up the body of Christ. We will not succeed in growing to maturity as a body. We will not seek in ministering to each other's needs well unless we come to understand that God is love and he expects us to receive an empowerment of his Holy Spirit through which we will minister to other people, not as one who does so solely with skill, but one who does so with the kind of love that Christ has shown us. My wife, my wife has been seeing a lot of doctors uh, recently, and there was uh, one particular physician that she needed to do some surgery on her that had no personality. <clears throat> In fact, uh, he didn't even do the talking for himself. He would send a, a physician's assistant into the room to explain everything that was going to happen and why this was needed and how he would perform it, and he would come into the room and say, any questions? And after our first meeting, uh, Carol was saying, I don't know that I, I could use him as a surgeon. There, there just is no connection with him. I don't know that I can trust him. He seems so, can I use the word, weird. So I, I looked him up on the Internet. You can do these things this day. Uh, you, you can have uh, all these ratings of all these people. And if you've ever used a, a site like Yelp for a restaurant, you realize there are people who love the place and will say nice things. There are people that hate the place and say horrible things. No one said anything bad about this physician. In fact, he had very high ratings. And so we actually called some other physicians. Uh, in fact, she went back to her primary care doctor and explained to her, I don't know if I can use him as a surgeon. And yet... Her primary doctor said, yes, I understand his personality, but he actually is the best at what he does. You should use him. On the day of the surgery, he was bouncing off the walls, literally. In fact, he even fell off his chair. He was so excited. He, he loves doing surgery. And, frankly, he did a wonderful job. Uh, in fact, if we were to have gone online and rated him, we would say, like, he's an amazing surgeon. We are so pleased with his work. And yet the whole process was so scary because that class on bedside manner, somehow he didn't pass that one. It just wasn't there. And I can remember way back when I was young and new with the assemblies, uh, I had been reared in a Baptist church in Upland here, and Carol had introduced me to Grace Bible Chapel. And I was attending a Bible and going to chapel every day, and I was coming to some of the meetings at the chapel, and, and one of the more gruff elders took me aside in the parking lot and said, what do you have against the breaking of bread? And I felt like I was cornered, you know, up against a car with this older elder speaking to me. I go like, I don't have anything against the breaking of bread. What do you mean? 
And he goes, you're not attending. And I said, I go to all kinds of meetings. Is it really that important? And he, oh, he, he said it was very important. Just out of fear, I started coming all the time. I just didn't want to be confronted in the, in the parking lot anymore. And I grew to love the breaking of bread. I, I grew to love the worship of the Lord and the manner in which uh, it is done. In fact, uh, when I go to another meeting of those that aren't among our fellowship of churches and, and see the way in which they remember the Lord, I feel like you are missing out so much on the beauty of an open meeting. I wish you would understand the, the beauty of the emphasis of worship the Lord before we remember him in the way in which he's described it to us. And it teaches me again that you can say the right thing, but say it in the wrong way and drive people away from you and hinder the work of the Lord. I grew to love that brother. He ended up uh, discipling me in the Lord. Uh, he was a great encouragement in my life. And, and I don't overall have a criticism of him other than uh, there were times in which uh, he forgot to minister through the work of the Holy Spirit, empowering him to show love in the way in which he exercises his gift. Look at verse 1. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, the Corinthians got all excited. In fact, from Paul's point of view, overly excited about the gift of tongues. And he said, the tail is wagging the dog here. You're using it way too much in the meetings. No one can understand what's going on. No one's being edified. You have to calm down regarding this. So he says, if you're excited about that, and yet you do not have love, the lasting effect is about as long as the clash of a cymbal. It's jolting, it's noisy, it goes bang, and then it's over. And there's no real lasting effect. And he's saying, that's the way you're going to hit people if you can't minister through love. It'll have no long-term effect. Paul is exhorting them to seek out those among them that had the gift of prophecy. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, again, a gift well worth seeking to build up in the body. Faith so much, and this is coming from the Lord's exhortation, that if you had faith even like a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain and pick up and move and be thrown into the sea, and it would he says, God is powerful to achieve what you are asking as you trust in him by faith. But if you had faith so as to move mountains and do not have love, he says, you'd be nothing. It would amount to nothing. Every aspect of the way in which we minister to other people, every aspect in the way in which we relate to God Every way in which God empowers us is going to be through one of his central attributes. God is love, and we are to walk in love as he empowers us. He said, if I were so generous that I were to give all my possessions to feed the poor. Remember the young man? who was wealthy, who was saying, oh, I've kept the law since my youth. You've got to give me another assignment. You know, that was easy, which is ridiculous. 
no one keeps the law perfectly, but he had graded himself on the curb, much like college students do. He's, he, Paul Jesus said to him, well, then go sell all you have and come and follow me. And he went away sad because he was unwilling to give anything away. He actually held tightly to his possessions. Paul says, if I give my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, meaning like if I'm willing to risk life to the point of becoming a martyr, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. These are revolutionary concepts to us that would cause us to say, wow, I am way, way off base. Because I taught at the college so long, I have like more than a thousand friends on Facebook. Some of these are becoming distant memories. I was going like, wow, you were at school a long time ago. But yeah, we're friends on Facebook. I met a guy that I didn't even recognize yesterday who says, we're friends on Facebook. I said, oh. <laughs> So I must not be very discriminatory as far as the friends are concerned. But what it does give me is an entire slice of culture. And if you've ever noticed, there's not a lot of love on Facebook. There's a lot of, let me show you who I hope I could be someday so that you will be jealous of me and wish you were me because my life is wonderful. There's a lot of braggadocious kind of activity that you read about on, on what everybody else is doing. And it, it creates a sense of inferiority. It creates a sense of my life is miserable. It creates a sense of I wish I were beautiful like you. And then there are the people that need sympathy. The people who... This is terrible stuff. This is not love. Culture teaches us things so backwardly than what the scripture actually says. This passage, though you could quote it at a wedding, is not a wedding passage. This is a passage that describes how we minister to each other in the body of Christ, the way in which we exercise our spiritual gifts. Look at the central section, beginning with verse 4. His very first statement is, love is patient. If you were to ask my wife, is Ken patient? She would laugh at the thought and say, he's not patient at all. However, the first time I went to her home in Bolivia, her mother complimented me. Now, this is my mother-in-law complimenting. She says, you are so patient. I have stood tall ever since <laughs> with the knowledge that my mother-in-law thinks I am patient. And I have sought to rise to that occasion and exercise as much patience as I possibly can because that's a compliment I would love to hear. It means you suffer long in the sense that a lot of things can come your way and you're not going to get knocked off your feet. It means you never give up. You don't give up on the Lord. You don't give up on yourself. You don't give up on other people. Even if people are retaliating against you, even if people have wronged you, you are patient. Now, some of us think that all Paul has taught here is what love is in abstract. And yet, if you've read the whole book, you realize the Corinthians have a lot of problems. And this chapter is not out of context from the rest of the book. 
At what point in the book would Paul exhort the Corinthians to be patient? In chapter 6, he says, you're suing each other in the body of Christ? Someday we're going to be judging angels and you're taking Christians to court? I've been threatened to be sued by a Christian in my church. Isn't that crazy? Can we not solve these things ourselves? Love is patient. It has the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate. We read in 1 Corinthians 11 that the Corinthian church practiced what could be called a love feast in which they had a communal meal before they had the rest of the meetings on a Sunday evening. So they would come and bring food. And, and the funny thing is, the rich people apparently didn't have to work late, whereas the poor people in the meeting did have to work late. The rich people would bring rich food and consume it all so that it'd be gone by the time the poor people arrived and had either nothing to eat or poor people's food to eat. And it ruined the rest of the evening. And Paul was so critical of that love feast, it's the reason why we don't meet regularly with love feasts. We just have an occasional potluck. But we don't do it on a weekly basis for fear that we'd fall into the problem of the Corinthians. He says, you're being so selfish as to say, well, the food's hot now, let's eat. They're not here. Have you ever been to one of those cookouts where you're supposed to bring your own meat? You bring hot dogs because you're humble? And you watch the, the food that the other people are cooking on the grill, and you're going like, I wish I were like other people. We are creating jealousy among each other. Let's be patient. Let's be, and here's the antidote, the very next phrase, love is kind. It means we care more for the other person's needs than we do our own. We actually go first. We had a relative over to our house, and uh, for, for some reason we were serving pizza that night. Uh, this is store-bought pizza that we had ordered in. And he started taking piece after piece. He couldn't eat them all fast enough, and so he not only had one in each hand, he filled his plate with pizza. I think he was afraid that we were going to run out. The problem was is he had not left very much pizza for everyone else at the table. And my wife actually even just spoke up and said, um, there'll be plenty. You don't have to fill your plate with pizza in fear that you're not going to eat. You'll have plenty. You can calm down. It's an amazing thing how people start thinking of themselves rather than thinking of others. We had a dear friend who regularly showed hospitality, and he, in the meetings of the church, would often find people to invite home uh, after the Sunday meetings. And a problem would be is sometimes he was over generous in his invitation, and he would invite more people to the dinner table than his wife had prepared food. And it, uh, it got a, a little scary at times. Uh, <clears throat> what was interesting is he had a code expression that he'd say that only his kids would understand. And what it meant was family hold back, which means 
The rest of us need to be careful how we serve the food in our plate because the food has to make it around among all of us or else we're going to run out. Few of us would want to have a Sunday dinner in which we would say family hold back unless we had learned Christian hospitality, unless we'd learned Christian love, unless we had learned to be patient and kind and generous as God is. Ministry won't take place well unless it's ministered through the godly attribute of love. Love is not jealous, meaning it does not envy. It doesn't want what it doesn't have. It doesn't see what the neighbor has and wishes that you had what he had. As we started having more and more kids, we had to keep moving to a larger and larger house in Dubuque. We consequently moved further and further out of town. We started only a kilometer from Emmaus. We ended up about eight miles away from Emmaus as we moved out into the country trying to find a larger house. The larger house came with a larger lawn. We had an acre-plus lawn to mow, and all I had was a push lawnmower. My friends were helping me move in were saying, like, I give you one week before you buy a riding lawnmower. There's no way you're going to be able to mow this lawn. We moved in in May, and so uh, I had a friend that took me aside and said, don't buy a craftsman like your friend and neighbor did. The only vehicle to buy is a John Deere, and he, he exhorted at great length why the John Deere will last forever and never break, uh, whereas these others will. So I went down to the John Deere dealer. There was only one riding lawnmower left, and it had racing stripes on it. It was the NASCAR edition, which didn't bother me at all. Came with a cap, a jacket, keychain. My wife wouldn't let me wear that to work for some reason. <clears throat> but I was jealous of my neighbors, who I had a 100 series. They all had a 300 series uh, tractor. And after about a year of this, I went back to the dealer, and I said, you know, sometimes my wheels slip, and, and sometimes the blades are getting clogged, and I only have a 100 series. You sold this to me last year. But my neighbors all have 300 series. And he was saying, you're just jealous. I sold you exactly what you need for the size of your lawn. Stop being envious of your neighbors. And if your wheels are slipping, go up the hill at an angle. Don't try to go straight up. And I was thinking, like, what kind of salesman doesn't want to sell me a larger tractor? It's a salesman who's speaking on behalf of the Lord, I tell you, who's saying, let's not be envious of our neighbors. Let's not wish we had something that we don't have. Let's be satisfied with the basics in life. Love is not jealous. Go back to the beginning of the book in chapters 1 and 3, where you learn that there are divisions in the Corinthian church in which they were rallying over various leaders. He uses placeholders like Paul and Apollos and Christ. Chapter 4, he says, those aren't their real names. They're actually people that you guys are rallying to. And he says, you can't do that. We are one body of Christ. We're not going to break into divisions here. We're going to follow Jesus Christ as the head of the church. No divisions. Love is patient. It's kind. It's not jealous. It does not brag. Much of social media today is bragging. It is showing off. 
It is saying, look how great I am. And it's just natural that people tend to want to boast. Uh, They tend to want to strut. This word talks about people who parade themselves around and actually try to show themselves off. It's interesting that people do that with spiritual gifts in which they try to show their spiritual gift in a way in which they become puffed up and haughty. Spiritual gifts should never be about receiving praise or honor or glory in any way. It should always be about how we serve each other and how we minister to each other. A problem, and this was a problem in the Corinthian church, is some of the gifts are more visible. He calls them showy. Some gifts you can see people doing, like up front in a meeting or something. Other gifts are behind the scenes, like the gift of helps, and you may never know that the person is using that gift. At our chapel in in, uh, Dubuque, we had a lawn. Again, that's just the way things are in the Midwest. It rains like every third day, so everything is green there. Grass grows, believe it or not. You have to mow in the summer several times a week. So we had people who had volunteered to mow the lawn of the chapel. The funny thing is, if you were to mow it when nobody's there, nobody would see you. And consequently, people would mow when they knew a meeting was about to take place so that they would be caught mowing and people could see them mow and then congratulate them and thank them and say, you humble brother who is so kind to mow, I am amazed at your generosity. I say that just about mowing, but you can go around and around and around about every use of every spiritual gift and you notice that people want to be seen and want to be recognized and want to... Have people puff them up, and the point is, no, we want God to know. We want God to be pleased, and it does not matter if other people are noticing. In fact, we are not to be arrogant. We are not to brag. We're not to seek attention to ourselves. In verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly. And the sense of behaving rudely in the way in which you treat someone else. Or behave in such a way that you dishonor someone else, showing them disrespect in some way. Because you may have a swelled head and you view yourself as more important than they are. Love doesn't dishonor. Love does not act rudely. You'd say, do we see this in the Corinthian letter? Yes, in chapter 11, there there are problems there in the way in which they are conducting the Lord's Supper. It's messed up. And he has to give them instructions as to how to run the Lord's Supper properly. There's a problem with women's role, and people are concerned about how the women are functioning in the meeting. In chapter 14, he says, the overall organization of the way in which you're organizing your meetings has problems. We have to bring honor to God rather than dishonoring ourselves in the way in which we seek to love our Lord and to worship Him. Next in verse 5, it says, It does not seek its own. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It's not self-serving. It doesn't force itself on others. It doesn't have a me-first kind of attitude. 
we have to be careful about our own natures and the way in which uh, we have a tendency to have personal preferences that can get in the way of, of the ministry one to another. In the letter that Paul writes to the church at Philippi, uh, you can sense all the way through the letter that there is some disunity in the meeting, although he considers it overall quite healthy. And you're wondering what it is. In chapter 2, he talks about we need to have the same attitude that's in Christ. And then he gives the illustration of the incarnation, saying, look how humble Christ was, which would imply that there are issues of humility here. And then finally, in chapter 4, he calls out the two ladies by name. We don't use these ladies' names anymore, but they're Yodi and Syndicate. And he says, Brothers, you have to come together and help these women. They're pillars of the church. They're fellow servants along with me in the work. But these ladies aren't getting along. And I'm thinking, could it be something theological? But Paul is so quick to speak theologically. You see that in the Galatian letter. I sense from reading through Philippi, it is, or the Philippian letter, it, it's a personal preference. It's demanding their own way. It's saying... I want what I want, and I'll run you over to achieve it. And it says here that love does not insist on its own way. So many of the young people that I know insist on exercising what they view as their personal freedoms, and they're concerned about how some of us may be more strict in our behavior than they are, and they will flaunt what they believe to be uh, their liberties. In 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10, Paul discusses what was a controversy for them, uh, food that had been first offered to idols and then sold in the marketplace. And he gives them principles by which they, they disagree theologically on what to do about this, how, how they would adjudicate the situation. And he is very clear in which he says, if it becomes necessary for you to withhold the exercise of your freedom so as not to offend a weaker brother in the body, you're obligated to do so out of love. Well, today's young people cannot fathom withholding the exercise of what they would view as liberties for the benefit of anyone else. And that has seeped past just the young people and is permeating its way throughout the rest of the church to where many of us have begun to say, I'll live the way I believe I can live, and I don't care how that affects you. And that is wrong. Love does not seek its own. It is not self-serving. It does not insist on its own way. It does cause people to limit their freedoms in order to show love one to another. The third phrase in verse 5, love is not provoked, meaning it's not easily angered, it's not irritable, it does not fly off the handle. You could go back to the chapter 6 lawsuits in which someone's so angry he sues another brother in the meeting. We have to let God solve these disputes. We are not supposed to exert vengeance ourselves. He says, vengeance is mine, I shall repay. We are to show Christian character and love and not be the kind of people who are easily angered. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love keeps no records of wrongs. It does not 
think evil of another person. It is not resentful. It does not keep score. If you know by memory the offenses your spouse has caused against you, and if they were to forget, you would be able to enumerate them immediately, you're keeping score. If you can think of someone else in the body who you have some level of angst against, and you feel you have been wronged, and if someone were to ask you, what did that brother ever do to you, and you could rattle off with great precision the various offenses that were caused, you're keeping score. Love thinks the best of the other person. Love does not assume the worst of the other person. It doesn't presume the other person is going to do additional harm. Love places the best construct on the actions of the other. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. You can see this in chapter 6 and 7 and 8 in which Paul has exhorted them to let go and let God work out these disagreements. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. In chapter 5, there was an issue of incest in which a man was living with a woman as if he were married to her, who actually was formerly his father's wife. I guess we would assume some sort of stepmother to him. Paul says, this isn't even tolerated among the unbelievers, and you're letting it go in your church. You're so tolerant, this doesn't even offend you. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. That means that we have to have a clear standard as to what God believes is right and what God believes is wrong, and we do not let the world's standards influence us as to what is right and wrong, and we do not look the other way at what is truly unrighteousness. It causes us to actually deal with problems in the body. It actually causes us to make sure there is not injustice or iniquity or wrongdoing in the body. It says we see unrighteousness for what it actually is. On the other hand, the very next phrase says, but love rejoices with the truth. We want the truth to win out, and so we are seekers of truth. There are a lot of half-truths, a lot of rumors floating around, a lot of uh, misjudgments that we hear. Uh, believe it or not, people lie about other people. We need to crave to know truth and to exalt truth and to hold to the truth. We rejoice when the truth wins out. And we see that again in the situation with incest in chapter 5, verse 8. Verse 7, love bears all things, meaning that it always protects, it never gives up, it puts up with anything. Love believes all things, meaning that it always trusts, it never loses faith, it trusts in God at all times. Love hopes all things, it's always hopeful, always looking for the best. 
Love endures all things, meaning that it perseveres in every circumstance, never looking back. It keeps going to the end. It remains steadfast in the face of even unpleasant circumstances. He concludes in his final paragraph, verse 8, love never fails, meaning that love will go on forever and ever as an attribute of God in a manner in which we will relate one to another. Speaking of these spiritual gifts that they hold so dear, he says, the gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away with. The gifts of tongues, they'll cease in and of themselves. If there's knowledge, there'll be a time in which we'll need it no longer. He says, for now we, you think we have knowledge, we only know in part. You think prophecy is so great, we only prophesy in part. We don't know everything about the future. But when the perfect comes... When the Lord Jesus Christ himself returns to take us to be with him, then the partial will be done away. He says, right now, I feel as if I had been thinking in a childish way, and yet I've come to understand I need to think in a much more mature way. He says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. I know I need to grow up, and I need to do away with childish things. What surprises us sometimes is the inconsistency in the way in which we function, where some moments we can be so mature and sometimes we are so impishly childish in the way in which we go about things. That's one of the things working with college students is there'll be flashes of brilliance and maturity and then you will just say, what were you thinking? You're acting so immaturely. Unless I become too critical, when I look back and replay the tapes of my college experiences, I'll say, I was exactly the same way. I had those same issues. We are inconsistent at that age, but we need to grow up. He says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Right now, he says, in some ways, I can't really understand everything perfectly. I feel as if I'm looking into a mirror, and it's not reflecting back a very perfect picture. In the city of Corinth, they were world famous for their polished brass mirrors. And the authors of the New Testament often pull their illustrations out of the context of the church to which they're writing. He's saying, you may be famous for these mirrors, but you really can't see the image very well, can you? We're seeing in a mirror dimly, but when Christ returns, when we go to be with him forever, we will be with him face to face. Right now we know in part, but then we will be fully known just, we will know him fully just as we have been fully known. We will come to understand him far more completely. But in the meantime, he says, three attributes of God I want you to concentrate on. Faith, hope, and love. Abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. If you go back to verse 7, you'll notice that these three are in verse 7 when he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Faith and hope are the outworking of the way in which we put into practice the divine attribute of love. Yes, we would exalt faith and hope of one, as wonderful attributes that we would want to live through in the way in which our trust is in God. Then let us, as we exercise ministry to one another in the body of Christ, 
using faith and love, faith and hope. Ask God, will you please make me a channel of your love to the brothers and sisters of Christ? It is beyond my ability to do this. Will you empower me to be selfless as I seek to serve the body of Christ? I was up at Verdugo Pines. I was in that nice cabin where the speakers stay. This particular time, my wife was with me. It was midnight, and there was a strong knock at the door. I got out of bed. I was not yet dressed. I opened the door uh, a tiny bit to glance out, and there was a person there saying, I need to talk to you right now. It's very important. I said, can this wait till the morning? I'm not even dressed. My wife's in bed. I can't invite you in. He says, no, I need to talk right now. Can you please come out? Humanly speaking, I felt like it's midnight. Everybody's supposed to be asleep. What are you doing out of your cabin? You know, uh, don't you have responsibilities around here or something? Why do you need to talk to me right now? But the spirit was in conflict with what I felt humanly. The, the spirit was saying to me, stop being so selfish. Put your pants on and get out there and talk to the guy. Has that ever happened to you where you say to yourself, there's a whole part of me that says, nope, not going to do this, going to be selfish, sleep's important to me. And yet the spirit, if you're sensitive to how God would lead, would say, no, this is a divine appointment, talk to him. So I put my pants on, forgot a jacket, I didn't realize it was going to be that cold out there. We stood out there for 45 minutes to an hour, talking at length, and it was, he was right, he did need to talk to me right then and there. And it keeps teaching me that God's appointments are more important than any of my desires. I need to be sensitive to his appointments. I need to be sensitive to his empowerment. And it doesn't matter whether I'm groggy or sleepy or tired or only half-dressed. If God wants to use me, I need to make myself available because that's what it means to minister out of love. Oh, brothers and sisters, would you pray with me as we call on God to help us be able to serve as God has empowered us through love? No, oh, Father, we come before you and we say, these things are so hard for us. They're so unnatural to us, and yet we realize how important they are. Surely you have shown us overwhelming love. You have shown us that you were willing to send your son to lay down his life to redeem us. You were willing to give up your son. You were willing to place our sin upon him and have him pay our debt so that you righteously could forgive us and extend to us the life that you possess. Oh, Father, with that kind of love, teach us through the empowerment of your spirit to exercise the gifts that you have given to us through the channel of love. Convict us in ways in which we have been misapplying this. Instead, may we find success as we submit ourselves to your guidance and your leading, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.